Hey, well, thank you very much, Kevin. Um, I, I, as Kevin was praying, I was just reminded again of how much is happening here at Grace Point and how many of you are behind so many things, from the missions trips that are going on. Um, even this week, a couple different small service projects flew under the radar that haven't even made it onto the, uh, you know, the church-wide landscape. People just doing things for one another and for our neighbors, which is profound. So uh, thank you for all that you're doing. And I'm just honored to be a part of a church that has this kind of heart to serve people around us in our communities uh, and our friends and neighbors around us. So you have found yourself in part uh, seven of a nine-part series we're doing here at GPC called Power. And in this series called Power, the, the thing that's behind this and underneath this is that we have a view that fundamentally we all kind of grow up with a default view of power and influence that if left unchecked or unprocessed just becomes a very natural kind of human way and often a very selfish way of exerting one's power and influence. And I also made the case that we tend to live in a world um, which right now, maybe more than any other time, uh, has examples of people in power that are constantly in front of our news feed and our news cycle. And it raises the question of how should one use one's power and influence in the world in which we now live. And what I don't want is the next generation to grow up thinking that what we see and how power is influenced and exercised, whether it be by politicians or whether it be by business leaders or whether it be by church leaders, that I don't want a younger generation to grow up and not be thoughtful about and considered about how should one use one's power and influence. Because what we allow by default often isn't what God might prefer for us should we be a little more intentional with it. And so what we have been uh, in in the last six weeks and now week number seven is a teaching by Jesus in which he gathered, ended up being, we think, about hundreds of people on a mountainside to give them some teaching and some ideas about what he called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And in that, he's essentially giving to them an idea of what does power and influence look like for the person who follows me in this way and in this kingdom. And we've been tracking with what Jesus said for you know, six weeks and now seven. And to set this, this teaching up that Jesus makes, I wanted to tell you what happened to me this weekend. I had the great opportunity to expand my do-it-yourself skills, which if you know my DIY skills, they're pretty top shelf already. So to go further than that was a pretty big push for me. So I find myself standing in the garage uh, that we have, and I don't miss the luxury it is to have a two-car garage, which we did not always have, and love the fact that we have a place to store the, the cars, which is amazing. And it was time to, as some of you may have done with your garage, just kind of uh, you know, re-up it, reorganize it a little bit. It was getting a little uh, unwieldy and out of hand. And so what I did when the kids were off school in a, at school in a way, um, and I had the day off, I backed the cars out of the garage, and I went out to the garage, and I looked around. And I tried to get an idea of what in the world needs to be done in this space to best organize. We have some snow shovels over there that I sure hope I don't need again for a long time. But they're not all put away, right? And then I have a bike over there that needs to get put somewhere, because there's two other bikes that need to get put somewhere. And then, you know, over here we have some lawn treatment stuff, and that's kind of not in a good spot over here. And... Um, you know, we just had some stuff, some things that needed to be put in other places. You know, a weed whacker over there and a hedge trimmer over here and just things that were kind of mashed in spaces. And so I just began thinking, looking around, like, well, what do I do? I'm just kind of stood there for a little while, like, what, what could I see the future being for this space? And I struggled for a little while and then I found the answer by Googling garage storage solutions. And I needed pictures because I had almost no idea in my brain how to solve the problem that I was now standing 
in the middle of. And one of those pictures I saw included this idea of kind of creating a table. And so I, I built this small table. Yes, you heard that right. I built this small table. I ask you not to put any weight on it or anything like that. But it does exist. It can hold light papers here and there, but a five-foot extension. And as I was trying to think about how to build this table, um, everything was a labor to me because it's not intuitive to me. So I'm thinking about how do I build this table and extend it off the shelving unit that I currently have that, by the way, I did build a while ago and still is standing, which is very exciting. And I wanted to build an extension on the table out of five-foot piece coming out. But the problem was I only really wanted to work with the spare wood and stuff that I had on site, like in my garage, and I thought I had enough to pull it off. And so as I sat there, I'm like, I don't know, you know, I could do it this way, I need to screw this in there, support it this way, how do you support the table in light of that, and I'd have to build the leg and angle it to get the middle, and it's going to warp over time, and you know, how does the leg stand up? And it... So I'm sitting there, and, I, and I'm cutting this stuff, and measuring, and blah, 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 and, and I'm like partway through the project, and I'm getting, you know, I go out to the side of the house where I'm kind of cutting my wood, and I'm, and I'm thinking like I'm, I'm like this is so hard for me like I'm laboring through this and I and you know what some of you came to mind for me I'm like if only you know you were there or you were there or you were there because they would know intuitively what to do and they would know instinctively how to make this table like they would have told me immediately like Tim you dummy you can't make the table this way you have to do it this way or you know do it this instead of this and here's what I I'm sitting there thinking like this is so hard for me but it's easy for some people. And I'm, I'm, as I'm cutting the wood, before I cut it, I'm thinking, why is this easy for some people and hard for others? Like, what, what is that? What, what is that phenomenon? And here's what I, I came to the conclusion of, and it's this. That our eyes see what our hearts are tuned to. That our eyes tend to see what our hearts are tuned to. And there's a relationship between the heart and the eyes in that way. That when my heart is tuned to construction, to creating beauty with physical space and building materials and the ability to do that, your eyes begin to be able to see and envision what the heart has experienced with or is tuned to. Like there's some people who have that ability because your heart goes there and then immediately you could walk into my space and within about a minute and a half you could tell me what it took me about an hour and a half to figure out in terms of best storage spaces because your eyes see what your heart is already tuned to. This is true for me and the things that my heart is tuned to. I took a trip to Atlanta a couple weeks ago, and as I'm in Atlanta, my heart is tuned toward the condition of the roads and what the roads would be like to bike, bicycle, not motorbike, but to bike in that area. Why? Because my heart is tuned to that, and I'm thinking about what that, would, what that future would be like. like. Would I want to live here? You know, what would I do if I were to, to bike there? Because I see what my heart is tuned to. Have you ever wanted to see what you can't see. Have you ever wanted to, to see what your music teacher can see when they say, you know what, let's, let's make the composition like this, and all of a sudden they change something. You're like, man, that was really good. Have you ever wanted to see what an older mom could see when she made a really wise decision in the moment in the grocery store with her kids? You're like, man, that was so savvy. You ever wanted to see what the greatest business leaders in our community can see who see the business trends before they actually happen and make the staff adjustments and strategic priority adjustments because they can see the landscape because their heart is tuned to the business rhythms in our community? Have you ever wanted to see what your heart can't quite, what your eyes can't quite get a hold of? Have you ever wanted to see more than you can see? And I would ask this question in particular regards to faith. Have you ever been in a situation where you have wanted to see God. Just, just for a minute. Like, if I could just see 
God, like I can see my friends, like if I could just see God like I can see my family, if I could just have a moment to talk with him like I could talk with my best friend, like it would be so much easier to navigate this space that I find myself in. It would be so much easier if I could just see God and, and talk to him just for, I wouldn't even need a long time, God, I just have one question. I'm standing in the garage of my life right now and I look around and there's a mess. This thing is falling off the shelf here. There's stress over here. I'm not sure about over there. And if you could just meet me in the garage for a minute, God, and we could just talk for a minute. And you could give me your eyes for a second on this. You could help me put this together well. Like if I just had even just 30 seconds and I could ask you the one or two big questions that I would really want to ask you. Because I think you would see better than I could. Wouldn't it be great if we could see God? Just even for a minute. Even for a minute. Here's the beauty of this. Jesus knows that this is a desire of our heart. And Jesus knows this has been a desire of the hearts of generations for generation, for generation, for generation, for generation. And what he teaches this morning, what he teaches to the hundreds of people, if not thousands of people gathered on the hill as he's given the Sermon on the Mount, is he says to them, there's a way, there's a way to see God. There's a way to see God. And so if you have a Bible, I want to take you to this teaching of Jesus in what we call the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or own a Bible, there's one in the pew around you, and uh, that's our gift to you, by the way. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to have you take that with you, as well as the book in the lobby on the way home if you don't have that. But Matthew chapter 5, it's the first book in what we call the New Testament, uh, and it's written by a guy named, believe it or not, Matthew, all right? Matthew was a follower of Jesus, and he wrote down an account of what happened when Jesus was walking the earth and his interactions with him. And Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, is where we have been. I'm going to read verses 1 to 10, and we're going to highlight, in particular, verse 8. Okay, so verse 1. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And then he says this, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus makes this statement in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I want you to get into the the mind of the listeners for a minute. Imagine yourself on the hill listening to Jesus, and you are... um, There's no such thing as a Christian yet, by the way, okay? I think I want you to understand that. If you don't know that yet, that's fine. But there weren't Christians yet. They were just Jews and Gentiles. And the Gentiles knew about the Jewish histories and traditions because that's all that was passed on to them. Uh, so there, there isn't a sense of um, this new idea, these new ideas that Jesus is teaching. In fact, nothing has been established yet. Jesus is some, teaching something brand new. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, the Gentiles as well as the Jews would instinctively, because that word purity is used, that word pure is used, they would instinctively go to what we call now the Old Testament view of purity. 
It wasn't Old Testament then. It was the only testament or covenant they knew at the time. And the view of purity in that time is, in order to be pure, you have to keep the sacrifices. You have to keep clean. You have to eat the right food and neglect the other food. You have to observe the uh, feasts and the special days, and you have to essentially follow the law. Do all the right things, and you will be clean. And that's what they would have heard. And so this is what they're hearing. Blessed are the pure in heart. And, and if they're not paying attention, they'll miss this. But blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And all that they're going to hear is blessed are the pure, for they will see God. That's what they're going to hear. Unless they stop and realize that Jesus did something very interesting. He didn't say blessed are the pure in action. Blessed are the pure in deed. Blessed are the pure in obedience. Blessed are the pure in faith or belief. Blessed are the pure in attitude. Blessed are the pure who wear the right things. Blessed are those who attend the right things. Blessed, he didn't say any of that. In fact, what he said was very peculiar and very, very different. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, where does that show up in the law? Where does that show up? In the way that things used to be. About 150, 170 years ago, there was a great preacher, speaker named Charles Spurgeon. Here's what he had to say about this very passage. He said this, It was a peculiarity of Jesus Christ that his teaching was continually aimed at the hearts of men. It was peculiar to him because other teachers had been content with outward moral reformation, but he sought the source of all the evil that he might cleanse the spring from which all sinful thoughts and words and actions come. He insisted over and over again that until the heart was pure, the life would never be clean. That Jesus introduces, takes this concept of purity in the Old Testament. The idea of having everything right, having everything in line, having everything be clean, everything, follow all the rules. And he says, you know what, take that concept. And instead of applying it to your deeds, instead of applying it to your actions, apply it for a minute to your heart. Apply it to your heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Let me ask you this. Have you ever um, found yourself in a situation, I'm not going to say whether I have or not, I'm just going to allow that to your imagination, but have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're driving, let's say to a make-believe church on Singer Avenue, somewhere in Paradise, Pennsylvania, if there happened to be such a place and such a thing, and you get in the car with your family and, or your, yourself or your spouse or your parents, and you know, it's been stressful. It's been stressful. It's been hard. Like, we're late. You know, we're two minutes late or ten minutes late, and we're late, and people are pushing people out the door, and it's a little bit of stress, and you kind of get in the car, and no one talks because there's tension in the air. You ever been in that kind of car ride on the way to church, right? And you get here. You finally get here after five minutes, ten, twenty, whatever it takes you to get here. You finally get here, and you open the door, and the tension kind of comes out as you, you get out, and you go in. But, but when you come in, when you come in, no one speaks of what happened in the car. And no one speaks of what happened on the way home because here we are. And part of it, part of it is just self-image protection. I get that. We're not going to air all our dirty laundry to everybody all the time. I get that. But underneath that, come on, come on. Underneath that, is there not an insidious thread that says, get your junk together before you come to God? Come on, isn't that there? Isn't that there for all of us? When you fail and when you sin, come on, get it, get it together before you come to him. And if you can't get it together, then fake it. it 
This Old Covenant, Old Testament concept of please get yourself pure and clean and right so that you can earn presence with God. Jesus blows apart in this statement and he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Not in deed, not in action or anything, but blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And the second part of the statement is as equally interesting as the first. For they will see God. What does Jesus actually mean? I mean, you can't actually mean, like, see God, right? I mean, no one sees God. God's invisible as any. God is spirit, right? I mean, you can't see God. I don't know what Jesus is talking about. Maybe, maybe Jesus is just talking about the future, right? Maybe that's what it is. Like, hey, blessed are the pure in spirit because, because someday you just hold on long enough, all you pure in heart people, just hold on long enough. Someday you're going to see God in heaven. Like, that's what it's going to be in the daytime, in the present. Right now you will not see him, but hold on, hold on. Sometime later you will see God and just hold on to that future promise. Is that what Jesus means? I would say yes, but I think there's more. Yes, but there's more. I don't think we need to sit around waiting, waiting for heaven, waiting for a future eternity and not seeing God in the present right now. And I want to tell you why I think that. And here's why. Because if our eyes, if our eyes see what our hearts are tuned to, okay, then we can see God when our hearts are tuned to him. If our eyes see what our hearts are tuned to, then I'd like to make the claim that we can actually see God when our hearts are tuned to him. Let me give you this illustration if I can. Take it out of the spiritual concept world for a minute. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, I said I was in Atlanta, like flying back from Atlanta, flew down and flew back. And, and the, the idea of flying and flying with children came to mind. Like we had a, a flight where there was a couple of kids near us. And, and the, time, the last year when I flew, I don't know if I told you that, I think I did, but there was a kid right in front of me last year who, uh, maybe two years old, maybe a year old. And I don't know if you remember this, but I heard a little, uh, like just a little hitch and instinctively dad reaches his hand over because he knows what's coming next. And sure enough, like there was almost no notice, a little, uh, and then the kid throws up all over dad's hand and it holds like one-eighth of the vomit, right? But the rest of it goes everywhere. And do you, not, do you not on a plane have differing reactions to sitting near small children when you get on? Like, especially a plane like, let's say, Southwest where you can choose your own seat. Like, do you, do you want? Okay. Here's the progression, by the way. Here's the progression of things. Imagine yourself, imagine yourself as a small child, or just imagine a small boy, all right, getting on an airplane, and this could be true of me or not. Think of a young boy compared to an older father or grandfather. When a young boy gets on a plane and he is around a, a family, he almost pays no attention to it and doesn't realize that they're even there because it's, it's awesome to be on a plane. We're going to play, we're going to do games, and we're just going to have a great, great time. As the kid grows up, and let's say he becomes a teenager, let's say he even goes off to, to college, or he has time to fly somewhere for spring break, let's say, and he gets on the plane and there's a family nearby, and the, the kid has flown enough, here's what likely happens in the eyes and the heart of a young man. It's like, dude, seriously, we're not going to sit near the kid, right? I mean, the kids are fine, but like, I'm not really into that thing, so like, can we go like, way up or way back? Because they're going to probably scream a little bit, and they might throw up. I heard a message one Sunday. I don't remember anything else, but I heard that kids throw up on planes, and so I'm just going to, you know, can we just not, whatever, we're going to sit up there. Years later, years later, this teenager starts realizing, you know what, 
Something's different. The reason is because he got married, and maybe like some of you are expecting your first child or have your first child, and all of a sudden something starts to change in the heart of a man, a growing man, from a young boy to a growing man to a man who has two or three kids, certainly to a, a, a grandfather. The thing that changes, the thing that changes is the heart of the man. The thing that changes is the heart of the father. When a father sits near children who are not his own, he has more patience with them than his own, generally speaking. And when he sits on the plane, what I see happening in the heart of a, a, a grown man who has his own kids is that the heart of a father has been changed. There's compassion and mercy and care for parents who have to go through the stress of travel with small children. And what has happened over time is that the same individual who may have been 5 or 15 is now 25 or 35. And over the time, his heart has been tuned differently and his eyes see differently. His eyes see not an annoying kid who needs to be avoided, but a kid who's actually dealing with great pain from the pressure and depressurization of the airplane who needs help and compassion rather than a kid to be avoided. That heart changes. The eyes see something different because the heart is tuned differently. And the same is true, the same is true for how we see what happens in the world around us. For me, when I'm driving down Route 30 or 340 or whatever, and I'm, I'm moving along, especially 340, okay? But this bothers me especially 340, and someone who has a New York license plate or Virginia license plate or whatever pulls out and goes less than 340 and goes about 25 on 340, okay? This is how, I have an emotional reaction to this. What happens in my heart in that moment when we are now going down a speed limit 55 at about 32 because you pulled right out in front of me? What do my eyes see? What is my heart tuned to? Instinctively, there's impatience, there's lack of generosity, there's an annoyance, there's a, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And let me ask you this, what then is happening in that moment? I would tell you what's happening in that moment is I see the condition of my heart in that space. And let me ask you this, what if in that moment, when instinctively I want to be a little upset at what they've done, I whisper a prayer I ask God for patience before I react. And in that space, I exercise because they don't even know what I'm doing. This is all internal for me, right? I'm not laying on the horn usually, usually. Um, this is all internal. But what if in that space, all of a sudden, inside of me is like, man, I really want to be upset, but I'm going to set that one aside because I'm going to lean into what I think God would have me to do for my own health and for theirs, and then I'm going to have a generous spirit here. What happens? I would argue that I have seen, I have seen God in that space change my heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God and the work that he does. And I believe it's in the heart space, when the heart is changed from what it naturally wants to do, that we actually see God working. Come on, when you are anxious about what your future is going to hold and you don't know what the future is like for your schooling, for your work, for the finances that you need, for your family dynamic, who you're going to hire or fire, or the future of your business... And instead of stepping into that space with anxiety and fear and trepidation, you take a step. Like, God, I need to step in here and get my heart right before you 
Do I trust you? What would you have for me in this space? And instead of anxiety and fear, that is replaced with a faith and a confidence. What have you seen? And I would argue you've seen God. You've seen him change a heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And this, I believe, is also what Jesus is talking about. That God can be seen, not just in the future, while sure, we can hope for that, but also in the very much present. When I'd rather choose anxiety and fear and anger and impatience, rather than choose love and service and patience and kindness. And when things in my heart are different, I see the work of God in my heart. Let me ask this question. How does one become? How does one become pure in heart? If this is so true, how does one actually get there? And I'll say this, that this is actually more to do with God than with me. In other words, there isn't a one, two, three, Jesus loves me, you know, four, five, six. I don't know what rhymes with that, but that was going somewhere and then that got off track, right? It's not a one, two, three, here's the thing to do, but what, what do I do? If I want to become pure in heart, what do I do? And I I would say that I want to give to you a question that I think can help, and I'll tell you why. The the question that I want to give to you will help you figure out what is going on in your heart and in my heart. If I want to become pure in heart, the answer isn't just try harder and be pure in deed, be pure in action, be pure in ceremony, be pure in ritual. That was the Old Covenant, the Old Testament way. That isn't what Jesus is saying. He isn't saying memorize all the Bible, you know, pray every day, five times a day, you know, whatever, sing only these songs. Like, this isn't what he's saying. Pure in heart. So what do I do? This is the work of God, but we can participate with him. Okay, We can work with him on this. And what I want to give you is a question that I think is a diagnostic question that will help you assess what drives your own heart. It's a question that if you've been around, you've heard before. It's a question that's tied to one of our key value statements here at GPC. When you walk in the back here, there's a mirror, I think it's hanging up there, and it says this, makes a statement, the fullness of God beats the brokenness of man any day. The point is that what God has to offer beats our brokenness, even the best of it, any day. And then we ask a question associated with that value statement, and it's this question. What do my desires, what do my desires tell me about my heart? What do my desires tell me about my heart? And here's why this is such a helpful question. Let me go back to the car, and you're with me in the car, driving down 340, and the tourist pulls out in this moment, in this space. In that instant, my heart, what does it desire to do? Be angry. Be, be put off. Seriously? New Yorker? In front of me. Again, do you not know I have a meeting? And if I don't get there, eight seconds is going to cost me? It's going to... What does my desire tell me about my heart? Immediately. It's a diagnostic question because instinctively I can see, well, what that, if you want to know the answer to that, it tells me that my heart is angry. Is that a justifiable rage? Probably not. Here's the thing about the heart, and I don't know if you thought about it this way before, but the heart is fueled, just like a car is fueled by unlighted gasoline or whatever, yours is fueled by, maybe you do a diesel or whatever, but we know what fuel drives certain things. What fuels the heart? The answer is happiness fuels the heart. Everyone desires and everyone's actions are always toward happiness all the time. I think it was Aristotle who said that a long time ago. In fact, you can't take an action that, that isn't driven by a desire for happiness. We all want to do that. In fact, if you're pushing back on that and being like, no, I don't think so. The reason you're thinking that is because you want to be happy. Because <laughs> you want to argue with that. And I, I get that. Like, we can't get around that point. Our satisfaction, our desires drive our heart. That is the fuel that gets into our heart. And our heart instinctively responds to desires. That's just the way it is. So what do our desires 
tell us about our heart. And so when I come to a moment where I'm anxious about my kids, I'm anxious about my future, when I'm afraid of whatever it could be, or when I just think God is absent, what in that moment do my desires tell me about the condition of my heart? And then I can ask the question, God, if this is where my heart is at, what is it that you want for me? Let me yield to you. Let me give you my heart that is fueled by my own happiness. Let me yield to you. Let me yield to love. Let me yield to service. Let me yield to what you would have for me. Because in this space, I want my life and my heart to be transformed so that I can see you in the space that I'm in and not just see the results of my own work. You know, kids, um, little kids, love the game, the peekaboo game. Come on, have we played that game? Everyone played that game with little kids, right? I don't know how old you are when you start to realize that adults or whatever don't actually disappear behind the, the, the hands, right? But just put the, the hands over here and then peekaboo, right? It's fun. It's fun. It's great. It's great. And the reason it's fun is because kids think that you actually, you know, disappear. And I don't know when, I don't know when they realize that they don't. And you've probably seen them then play the game too. Like, oh, maybe I can disappear, you know. I'm still here. It's a beautiful game. It's fun. I have nothing against the game. I'll continue playing. And here's why I bring it up. Many of us think that God is kind of like that. He's kind of put his hands over here. We're looking at him like, God, I think you've disappeared. I think you're not here. I think you're not present. It's a very simplistic view of God. And what if God is just saying, come on, let's play a little bit. Trust me. Trust me to take the anxiety. Trust me to take the marriage. Trust me to take the kids. Come on, trust me to take who you're dating. Trust me, trust me. Come on, come on, let's play the game. Then you're going to see in a second, peekaboo, I'm still here. And I haven't gone anywhere at all. When your heart changes from fear and anxiety and self-preservation to inviting God into the space, Changes, pure in heart, to God, teach me. Help me to love my neighbor. Help me to serve my employees. Help me to yield in humility to my wife and my husband. What do I see? Peekaboo. I see that God has been there the whole time. And this is what I want for you. I want you to see God in this space. And this is why I think Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Not in action, not in activity, not in faithfulness, not in being awesome. But in yielding that heart to God. So that in that space, peekaboo, I can see that God has been there. All the time. All the time. It isn't enough just to wait for eternity to see him. God is real. He's present. And Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they're going to see. They're going to see God. And isn't it great when you have someone standing in the garage of your life and can look around at the stuff that's fallen off the shelves and the things that need put up and the things that need put away, and they can see it. And they can envision it, and they can give clarity, and they can help you. And Jesus says, give it a try. Trust me with your heart. In those spaces, in those moments, invite 
me there. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they're going to see the work of God in their day-to-day lives. Next week, one more teaching of Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's going to be fun to see what that has to offer. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to see your word again and to engage what your son Jesus Christ had to teach us. And I pray that you would help us to be courageous with what we hear and to be courageous with what we do with it. I pray that when we see things in your word and we engage them, that you would help us not to walk away unchanged from them, that we would at least fight with it, argue with it, figure out if we believe it or don't believe it or wrestle it down to the ground, but help us at least not to walk away without engaging and without having it mess with us a little bit. And so I pray for us that we would be people who chase this down and pursue it, that our hearts, as we lead into the spaces that we serve in, in our schools and in our businesses and in our homes and our communities and our families, that when our hearts want to lead us toward selfishness, toward fear, toward anxiety, toward anger, toward impatience, lack of forgiveness, bitterness, rage, anger, all these things. That in those moments, in those spaces, God, that we could ask this question, what do my desires tell me about my heart? And invite you in to that space to turn our desires, to love our neighbor when they're not lovable, to pray for our enemy when they're still our enemy, to be patient with our spouse, to be understanding with our children so that we will see the work of God today in our midst. Father, we thank you for your word and what it teaches us. Give us courage to do what we know. We need to do, and we pray this in Jesus' name.